join me in prayer, if you would. Father, we come now to recite your word and to hear your word preached. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would hide your word in our hearts so that we would, out of the abundance of it, be able to live in a manner pleasing in your sight. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you let us to hear your word this morning mixed with faith, believing in you, trusting in you, knowing that you are faithful, your word is true. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would grow us by your word, that you would transform us into the very likeness of Christ, that as a congregation, one and all, we would mature into him. And so, Lord, again, bless the reciting of your word, bless the reading of your word, bless the hearing and the preaching of your word, cause your word to produce the life and the fruit that you intend. Holy Spirit, come, Lord, own the ministry of your word, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, before we turn to our text for this morning, which is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, uh, let's see if we have anyone who would recite for us uh, our text from last week. Last week we were in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. Is there someone who would either recite verses 22 to 25 for us or recite all or a part of the whole chapter? Is there any takers? Come on, don't be shy. Okay, let me ask the opposite question. Don't be embarrassed now. How many of you guys are falling behind in scripture memory? Come on, raise your hand. There we go. All right. So we're falling behind a little bit. Okay, that's all good. It's all good. Let's catch back up. <laughs> Let's catch back up. And there are two ways to catch up. You can either go back and sort of pick up where you left off, or you can just jump right into our text for today and begin sort of memorizing going forward and then backfilling a little bit. Okay, whatever you prefer, one sentence, one verse at a time. Uh, let's catch up and hide God's word in our heart too. Okay, so don't be embarrassed because I fell behind too. Okay, I fell behind too. So I'm committing with you to catch up. All right, we're in the, we, we on the struggle bus together. All right, plenty of room on the struggle bus, okay? Well, let's hide God's word in our hearts. So uh, if you have your Bibles, turn with me in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. I mean, I got verse 1 still, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Right? All of it count. All of it count, beloved. Uh, so we're going to turn to uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And again, Father, we pray, help us to hear your word this morning. Help us to believe your word. Be changed by your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. How does a church grow? That's the question that's kind of hanging over these three verses for me. How does a church grow? Church growth is a conversation that is held by lots of people in lots of positions, lots of places with lots of opinions. A lot of the growth that we see in the church world or the conversation about growth, uh, particularly among church leaders, tends to be about numerical growth. You know, particularly if you're a church plant, as, as we have been, uh, almost from the start, people are talking about how many people are attending your services, how many become members, how many be, are baptized, and how many members do you need to be self-sufficient. And it's an interesting conversation. I'm not sure it's an important conversation, numerical growth. And that's because Jesus said he would be the one who would grow the church. 
It's not down to our strategies and how slick we are, how clever we are. I mean, you are here, and ARC is anything but slick, right? We don't have a lot of signs, and uh, we don't have a lot of sort of fancy things on the screen, and, um, you know, we just, we just people, right? We like it like that, right? Because it's not about performance. It's not about bottoms in the seat. So numerical growth has its place, and we want to see the Lord's churches filled, but I don't think it has first place. And then there's conversation about transfer growth. So with most church plants, the growth in the church plants uh, actually are existing Christians moving from other churches into these new churches. That's the bulk of it. And on some level, that's necessary, right? Because uh, if you're starting a new church, there are two ways to do it. You can parachute into a neighborhood knowing nobody there, and you can do that kind of parachute. It's called parachute planting, where you just show up with your toothbrush, right, and you just, like, going after it. Or you can do this with a band of other believers who have a similar vision to see a new church started, etc. So transfer growth is important, but that's not really the kind of growth that most of us want to see as Christians either. We'd rather see conversion growth, right? So we'd rather our churches be filled not just with existing Christians who came from some other place to a new place, but we actually want to see the church filled and the church grow um, through people hearing the good news about Jesus Christ, that he has come into the world, died for our sins, was raised from the grave, and God gives eternal life and forgiveness and righteousness to everyone who puts their faith in him. We want to see people hear that message go, oh, my heart is open to Jesus. I, I confess that I'm a sinner. I, I want to follow him as Lord and then be baptized and become a part of the church, and, and so the church grows. That's, that's ideal. But even then, there's another level of growth. And that's spiritual growth. So how do existing Christians grow, not in terms of the numbers of them in one place, but how do they grow in spiritual maturity? How does a Christian church help folks who might have been babes, infants, newborns in Christ, become full-grown adults in Christ? That's the burden of our text this morning. And the answer to that question might be put this way, that the church grows spiritually by doing three things, putting away sin together, drinking spiritual milk together, and remembering that God is good together. Putting away sin together, drinking spiritual milk together, and remembering that God is good together. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Apostle Peter writes there, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Like newborn infants, long for the spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now remember, Peter is writing to uh, persons he called elect exiles spread throughout Asia. Uh, they are displaced Christians through persecution and other things, trying to make a semblance of Christian community and identity in a hostile world. He has written in chapter 1, verses 3 to 9 or so, really in celebration and praise of their salvation. 
Remember how he opens in verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And man, he takes off from there just over and over and over again, celebrating the fact that these people, exiles though they are, are really loved by God and been saved by God. And then he comes down around verses 12 or so, 13 or so, and he begins to exhort them to prepare their minds, to gird up the loins of their minds, that they might live with hope, and that they might live with holiness. And in verses 22 to 25, as we saw last week, he calls them to be now a community that is formed and held together by love for one another. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from the heart. And he tells us in verses 22 to 25 that that community of love, of earnest love, sincere love, that community straining to love one another with every muscle that they have, well, that community and, and that kind of love is produced by the Word of God. So he calls the Word of God the truth. He calls it the Word of, of the Lord. Um, out in verse 25, he explains that this word is the good news, it is the gospel, and when we come to verses 1 to 3, he still is in this frame of mind where he's talking about the word of God and how the word of God works in the church. And one of the ways it works in the church is it produces spiritual growth, spiritual maturity. And that begins by removing some things, putting away some things. See there again in verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. That, that notion of putting away, um, a lot of the apostles use this, this picture, Paul uses it, of, of taking off like dirty clothes. So these are the dirty clothes, the clothes that have been spotted from the world. We've been traveling through the world. We've gotten sort of stuff on us, and that needs to be put away. That needs to be taken off and put in the hamper or put in the wash. And he lists five things there. He says to put away all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. These are the kinds of things that are contrary to love. So if he says in verse 22, chapter 1, verse 22, that we're to love one another, a fruit of the Spirit, he now is coming, chapter 2, verse 1, and he's listing the works of the flesh, to use the language that Paul uses in Galatians chapter 5. This is anti-love. This is the kind of thing that works against love, that falsifies the claim to love, and that if left unchecked will actually destroy the church. First, we're to put away all malice. Well, what's malice? It's another word for wickedness, or depravity, or evil, or vice. When someone acts malicious or acts out of malice, they're, they're acting in a mean-spirited way, a vicious attitude. They're, they're motivated to, to hurt us or to cause us loss. When you see them say, I'm going to get them back, that's malice. Right? That's that kind of mean-spirited anger. I can't stand. And the text says here, malice has no place in the community of God's people, in the Christian life, in the Christian church. We're called to love one another, and love does not seek to harm, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us. I mean, we can't love someone that we're being mean or vicious toward, can we? I think that's gaslighting. 
I love you. Those two things don't go together. I love you. Malicious, kind of stabbing in the back or mistreatment. You got to put that away, Peter says. Secondly, he says, we must put away all deceit. Well, you know what deceit is, another word for lying, right? When a person deceives someone, they are intentionally causing that person to think something and to believe falsehoods as if they were true. This is usually for some advantage, for some exploitation. So you think about con artists, right? A, a con artist really trades in deceit. Their whole thing is to give you a picture, to give you a story, to give you a point of view, to make you believe one thing so that they can sort of deceive you out of something else. And this is anti-love. We cannot love someone based on a lie. We must be truthful with each other. Peter says, number three, we should put away hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is a lot like deceit. But with hypocrisy, a person now is presenting himself or herself one way while knowing that in truth, there's something else. Hypocrisy is play acting. It's a word in the original that's associated with the theater. It's putting on a mask. It's pretense. Hypocrisy can be when a, when a person behaves one way with certain people in certain situations, but behaves differently in another situation with other people. We've got a wonderful example of this by the man who wrote this letter, Peter. You remember what Paul says in the book of Galatians? That Peter now be, was hanging out with Gentile people and, and, and acting like Gentiles, right? He was accepting them. They were fellowshipping uh, together as Christians, Jew and Gentile, and, and then some Jewish people came from Jerusalem, came into town, and, and, and Peter then all of a sudden dissed the Gentiles and started acting real Jewish. Paul says, I rebuked him to his face because he was acting in hypocrisy and he was out of step with the gospel. Peter knew what he was writing when he wrote that word. He knew how serious a temptation this would be to Christians. Now, you know that this kind of hypocrisy makes love a fake show, a stage play, rather than reality. So we got to put it away. Number four, Peter says we got to also put away envy. You know what envy is. It's what you feel when you're watching Instagram and you see your friend get on a plane. Envy happens when one person looks at another person or another person's situation and becomes critical, resentful, low-key angry, competitive, covetous toward them. For example, you're not liking someone because they're good at something and you're not. That's envy. You don't like the way she dresses because you can't dress like that. It's envy. You don't like him because people seem to really like his company and light up when he walks in the room and he seems to be the life of the party and, and you want to be but you ain't. It's envy. I mean, y'all call it hating these days. But that's what it is. And we don't tend to love very well when we're envious of people, do we? Finally, we got to put away Slander. 
Slander is speaking falsely and negatively about someone in order to hurt that person's reputation with others. Now, maybe we live in a day where slander is uniquely prevalent. Social media, for example. Uh, folks just talking reckless and wicked nonsense about people. Just slandering to, to hurt the reputations or to, 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 to sort of turn the opinion of others um, toward folks. So it, even in high school and elementary or uh, middle school, you know, the, the cyberbullying and the kinds of things that happens between young people that's built on slander, built on misrepresentation and lies and the, and the worst presentation of people. This may be uniquely prevalent today, but the Bible repeatedly warns against slander. For example, Psalm 15, verses 1 to 3, asks this question, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? And the answer is the question this way, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. The psalm is saying, you don't walk on God's holy hill if you're a slanderer. Or Leviticus chapter 19, verse 16. You'll remember this from our series uh, earlier this year and last year. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. And you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. In the context, he's particularly talking about the legal courts, but it applies very generally. You should not, I should not be walking around among Christian people, among God's people, slandering people. The Lord sees and knows. Proverbs 10.8, the one who conceals hatred has lying lips. And whoever utters slander is a fool. And in Proverbs, the fool, the one full of folly, right, is the picture of the unrighteous person condemned before God. Slander belongs to Satan, not to saints, beloved. This is how the enemy speaks, not how the Christian speaks, right? And it's contrary to love. Now notice, the verse says, put away all malice and all deceit and all slander. The word all is not used with hypocrisy and envy, but it is implied. In other words, none of these sins in any amount are to be practiced and tolerated among God's holy people. It's not like he's saying, oh, you can have a little, a little dabble of hypocrisy. You have a little smidge of envy. No, 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 we're going to put away all of these things altogether. The Christian church can't be satisfied with a, a little bit of this. It must see the presence of any of it as a threat to our love. So our ambition must be a kind of holy intolerance of those sins that would threaten the unity and the love and the witness of the truth in Christ's name. Can't treat these things as tolerable tolerable or respectable. I recommend a book to you. If you haven't read it before, it's Jerry Bridges' book, Respectable Sins. It's a wonderful book where he's just sort of probably about 14 or 15 sins he's meditating on that have kind of become respectable in our culture today. Right? It's, it's kind of respectable in our culture today to walk around in sinful anger, venting, mad about everything. 
murmuring and complaining have become respectable, but God calls them sins. We've talked about slander and hypocrisy and deceit. Some people make a profession of, of, of deceit and get paid by the voting public to do it. These things are not respectable, and they're not meant to be tolerated among God's holy people. Not if we're going to have a community built on love. We can't treat these things as less serious than the obviously serious things, right? So we're in an American Christian culture where the obviously serious things are those two or three things that we always talk about and get righteously indignant about. Sexual sin, things of that sort. But then there are all these little sins that are just <laughs> like, like moss growing in the corners of the hearts of the Christian church that we don't want to put no light on, that we don't want to dry out, but we know we're there. And Peter is saying, I mean, when you look at this list, notice he's not talking about those sort of obvious behavioral external things. He puts his finger on all those things in our hearts, doesn't he? Because Jesus taught him to begin there out of the abundance of the heart. The mouth speaks, behavior comes. And so we, we have to begin there too and it, it develop a holy intolerance for these things in our hearts. But the question becomes, what do we do if these things happen, right? We, we're, we're bumping along in church, we're, we're singing James Cleveland or Kirk Frank or whoever you're singing these days, you know, some people I don't know, Maverick City. You're singing whatever you're singing, you're bumping along, you're minding your holy business. And then somebody said, girl, I got to tell you something. That's actually how the brothers talk, bro, I got to tell you something. Right. We start gossiping and a little slander in it, right? What what are we gonna do? When we find out that we're the ones being slandered or or or, or being viewed with envy or or what have you, what, what are we gonna do? Let me just offer you a, a couple of texts to think about as a beginning for us to work on drying this up wherever it exists in our own hearts or with others. Peter tells us a little late in the letter, look over at first Peter chapter three, verses fifteen and sixteen. Peter tells us there um, that in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. You see Peter's formula here. First thing we're to do is sanctify Jesus in our hearts. Set him apart as Lord. Be really clear that, that he is holy as Lord. And because he is holy, as Peter told us in chapter 1, verse 17, we are to be holy too. We've got to be clear about that in our own minds, right? We, we're just going to conduct ourselves that way. And then number two, we're going to move in the world the way Jesus moved in the world, with gentleness and respect. He described himself as gentle and lowly so people could come to him and take his yoke, right? Well, we want to be those kind of people too, with gentleness and respect, with a good conscience so that, listen, Peter says, you don't even have to defend yourself. If you live that way and somebody slanders you, they're going to be the ones put to shame. Right? We, we want that kind of witness, that kind of testimony where somebody comes say, man, let me tell you, man, I, I was talking to Mr. Colley the other day, man, and and Mr. Colley, yeah, 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 yeah. See, Mr. Colley has the kind of reputation, and we want to have the kind of reputation where we go, you know what, if you're saying some bad things about Mr. Colley, you're the one with the problem. Yeah. 
We want to have that kind of reputation where we're like Ashley Shuler, right? Ashley Shuler just be praising the Lord. You with Ashley, you're going to get a word. You know, if she's going to talk about anybody, it's going to be Jesus. She ain't got time to talk about you because you're talking about Jesus, right? And so somebody comes to you, man, I don't know about, the, I don't know about that Ashley Shuler chick, man. Ashley Shuler, she, yeah, 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 yeah. You want that kind of reputation, you're like, you know what, you got to get out of my face right now. You ought to be shaming yourself because that's just to love the Lord. And it's obvious. And anything that's said contrary to that must be from the evil one. Right? We want those kinds of reputations personally by sanctifying Christ in our heart as holy and being respectable and gentle with everyone so that we don't even have to defend ourselves. Let me give you another text. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32. This is the Apostle Paul now writing very much about the same things, and here's how he instructs the Ephesians church uh, with, these, with regard to these kinds of matters. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Saying the same thing Peter said, right? Put all that stuff away along with all malice. Then he says this, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. He's like, yo, think about how God forgave you in Jesus. And then let that flavor how you are tenderhearted, how you are forgiving, how you are kind to one another. That really is the, the antidote. That's, the, that's the, 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 the sort of antiviral shot that we want to be taking when we come into contact with these things. And if we're going to put these things the way together, then we must now. If we're going to put them away together. We must return virtue when we are receiving vice. We must return virtue to those from whom we are receiving vice. How did Jesus put that? Turn the other cheek. Every once in a while, Jesus says something, and we're honest with the stuff we don't say out loud, right? But we're honest. Every once in a while, Jesus says something we like, you sure, Jesus? Maybe that's a misprint. Jesus says, turn the other cheek. The apostles say, return virtue for vice. We meet bitterness and anger with tenderheartedness. We meet disrespect and mistreatment with gentleness and respect. We reply to slander and reviling with forgiveness and good work. Our virtue in Christ will be the inoculation against these anti-love sins. Here's the sort of take-home question for us with this first point. How well are we responding to vice with virtue? How good are we at that? How consistent are we with that? How tempted are we to put on instead of putting away malice, slander, hypocrisy, envy? Wherever we feel some weakness in this, we should ask God for grace to put it away, individually and corporately. So if we're going to grow, we've got to get these things out of the way. These are the things that are gunking up the carburetor. But then secondly, we've got to drink spiritual milk together. 
So as the sins of verse 1 are being put away, we must also commit to the program of verse 2. There, Peter writes, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up to salvation. So verse 1 tells us what to put away, not to, what to not want. Verse 2 tells us what to desire, what to long for. And Peter uses a, a beautiful illustration here. In verse 2, he compares now the Christian church to what? Newborn babies, to infants. And one thing about newborn babies is they're going to cry for that milk now. They're going to long for that milk. And, and that, that phrase they're long for uh, is maybe too weak in the English, right? Um, that phrase they're long for is to really strongly desire because your life depends on it. And that's the case with the baby in milk, right? The baby doesn't get milk. The baby becomes malnourished. The baby becomes sick. The baby may even die because of that. And so that cry is a demand for something that is life-giving, life-sustaining. Come to me. Feed me. And if you don't, I'm going to get louder. So I'm longing for this thing. And all of us with kids and nieces and nephews, we've been trained by them cries, ain't we? Uh, you don't come quick enough and the baby get louder, boy, you know, grown folk be jumping up out of the recliner. Let me get this baby a bottle. Let me get this baby a, some milk. In the same way, we should long for, Peter says here, the pure spiritual milk. Now, keep in mind, just sort of understand this analogy. Keep in mind that in the first century, there were no bottles or powdered formula. An infant could receive milk really one of two ways, either from their nursing mother or maybe if she had problems breastfeeding, a wet nurse uh, who, would, who, would, who would actually suckle the babe, who would actually breastfeed the babe, right? So Peter's analogy makes the church like nursing infants and God like a breastfeeding mother. Now, if that sounds strange to you, let me tell you why. Men. <laughs> Somewhere along the way in the history of, of interpretation, some men decided that breastfeeding mother was not sort of an appropriate image for God, that God always had to be depicted as male. And they did that contrary to the Bible. So let me give you a couple of verses here. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 15. Isaiah 49 is a question, really, and it goes like this. Can a woman forget her nursing child? So that's the, that's the analogy, right? A woman, a nursing child, he says, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? And the question here is sort of meant to make us realize that that would be unnatural. That would be something unhealthy, something wrong about that. A woman with a, with a nursing child who cries out, they're instinctively and habitually going to go feed that child. Now the comparison. Even these may forget, but God says this, yet I will not forget you. God himself uses this image of a a nursing mother, to depict his picture, his relationship with his own people. Or a slightly longer passage, Isaiah loved this image. Isaiah chapter 66, verses 10 to 13. You can turn there with me if you like. Isaiah 66, 10 to 13. Isaiah now is talking about Jerusalem and talking about God, and he uses Jerusalem as a picture of God, and he uses breastfeeding a mother for all of it. Verse 10, rejoice with Jerusalem. And be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, 
all you who mourn over her, verse 11, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. Then verse 12 turns it. For thus says the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream, and you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knees as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you, and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. Here's God presenting himself to his people as a nursing mom comforting her children. Or take even a name for God, El Shaddai. Right? It's most often translated the mighty one. But it's interesting how often that name appears, and it appears in the context of something like a nursing mom. And that root word, shad, uh, in the Hebrew is, is, can be translated breast. So sometimes people talk about God as the many-breasted one. He nurses his people in this way. A few things could be more intimate than that. A few things could be more tender than that, more beautiful than that than a mother nursing her child. And so it is with God and us. And giving attention to the pure spiritual milk, which is Peter's way of talking about the word of God here, giving attention to the word of God together makes the church like a nursing infant and God the one supplying the source of life, the milk of his word. So we should long for it frequently the way a baby does. We should long like infants for the word until we are satisfied from it like a baby does. We should long like infants for our mother's milk, our mother's milk specifically, our our God's word specifically. Not other words, but his word. And the result of this pure spiritual milk, Peter tells us, is growth. Peter says, long for it so that by it you may grow up to salvation. That's the whole point. That's the whole point of us gathering. That's the whole point of us hearing sermons about God and his work in the world. That's the whole point about us being dedicated to God's word rather than the preacher's ideas. It's because in this word, this pure, unadulterated spiritual milk are the nutrients that we need as God's children to grow up in him, to mature in him. So the point is not head knowledge. We don't drink the milk of God's word so we can flex our theological muscles and impress our friends at dinner parties. The point is growth, real spiritual growth. Now, when Peter says that you may grow up into salvation, I don't think he means that we may be saved. We don't drink from this pure milk so that we may be saved, although that that is actually what happened to us. We heard God's word, and by God's word, we were converted and brought into um, new life with Christ. We became his children. Verse 3, he caused us to be born again. And if you're here this morning, you're not yet a Christian, that's precisely what needs to happen to you if you're going to live forever with God in his love and his kingdom. You need to hear the good news that Jesus died for your sins, was buried and resurrected three days later, so that you might be forgiven by God and that you might have life with God, and you need to repent of your sin and put your faith in Christ. Then you will be born again. But now once that happens, and Peter has already assured these Christians that that's true of them, back in verse 5 and verse 9 of chapter 1, once that happens, we got some growing to do. 
Nobody comes to Jesus full grown. We all come to Jesus as babes, as infants, needing to grow up. And that's what Peter has in mind. Our growing together as we feed together on the milk of God's word. It's the very thing that Paul wrote about again over in Ephesians. So if you want to look at Ephesians again, Ephesians 4 verses 13 to 15. Paul was talking about the fact that Christ has given to the church gifted persons for the work of the ministry. And, and he tells us what the purpose of that is, what the goal of that is in verses 13 to 15. That they, we are to do the work of the ministry, and I think Paul means by the, the word of God, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Notice, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. God's plan for our maturity is our feeding together on the pure spiritual milk of his word until we all reach maturity in Christ. No one left out, all of us together, growing into the fullness of the stature of Christ. There's a very real sense in which if we are in covenant together as members of this church, I'm only as mature as you are. You're only as mature as I am. We're meant to get there together. It's not a solo race. We are one body, and this one body needs this milk. It used to be a commercial said, milk does a body good. That, that, that's true. We all need to feed on it. We all need to grow from it. We all need to grow and develop and mature together as God intends. So how many of us Christians want to grow spiritually? Thank you for the five who raised their hands. How many of us Christians want to be like Jesus in character, in speech, in actions? Okay, I got 10 more. I appreciate y'all. I appreciate y'all. I don't know what kind of church we got here, Pastor Tim. <laughs> I mean, how many of us Christians, though, because you, you, you didn't raise your hand because you knew a hook was coming. How many of us Christians, though, are dedicated to drinking spiritual milk together? I mean, look again at Ephesians 4, 13 to 15. Spiritual group growth is a group project. I know we all learn to hate group projects from the time we were in grade school. But it is a group project. It's a family project. American individualism has us trying to do group work all by ourselves. Right? Personal quiet time has almost replaced corporate time in the Word altogether. But that's not God's plan for the church. Keep in mind that in Peter's day, individuals didn't have copies of the Bible the way we do. They didn't have it on their phones. They didn't have apps and websites they could go to. So how were they to get this milk? Well, they met together to hear the scriptures together, to hear their leaders teach together. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 45, they did this daily together. And as they drank the milk of the word together, they grew in their salvation together. Everyone wants to grow. That's good, or at least I hope so. But have we recognized how central to our growth studying the Word together is? 
As a church, we make three services available when we can gather together to grow from the Word. And these are three services that we would encourage every member to commit to. Obviously, our Sunday morning time of prayer at 9 a.m. and our Sunday morning gathering, this gathering right here, at 10 a.m. Now, many Christians think, okay, if I go to the Sunday morning gathering at 10 a.m., I'm sort of doing my Christian duty. If I go at 9 a.m., I got an S on my chest. I'm a super Christian. Beloved, I want to encourage you to think about this as the minimal feeding of God's people. This might get you to Wednesday in a rough week. You're going to need to eat more than once a week. You're going to need to meet, drink this milk more than once a week. So, so prioritize Sunday morning, 9 a.m., come pray with us, heart warmed and mind readied by the saints praying the Word of God and singing the Word of God. And then let's come in here, let's gather. If you come at 9 a.m., you'll be on time to come. Let's be on time to drink from God's Word together. See, I grew up in a big family. I'm the youngest of eight. If you weren't at dinner on time, you just might not eat. So I like to be here on time so I can eat with the saints. And then add something midweek. So we have a Wednesday night um, Bible study on Howard's campus. Is that right, CO? Wednesday night Bible study on Howard's campus. If you're a student and you're on the campus or you live nearby, participate. Get that midweek drinking of the milk. And we have Thursday night Bible study. We're going through the book of Revelation right now. We meet over the Anacostia Library at 6.30. Come, feed midweek, because about Wednesday, you're starting to feel a little parched, aren't you? You're starting to feel a little parched. And, and, and if we're not careful, you know what we start to live for? Not, not fellowship with Christ. We just start living for the weekend, don't we? If I can just make it to the weekend. God has so much more for us, beloved, than a just make it to the weekend kind of ethic. God has got the milk of his word for us to drink and be nourished by. And every day can be Sunday. So make that midweek study a priority. And then we have small groups and triads that meet on different days throughout the week. So um, our sister Ashley Davenport uh, helps to coordinate small groups. If you're interested in a small group, reach out to her. If you're interested to lead one, reach out to her. Our brother Durst Johnson and, and the brothers who lead the men's fellowship uh, organize the triad groups. These are groups of men in three, four, six. Uh, some people have problems with the definition of triad, right? Um, sometimes six, seven people. Uh, and so, uh, but they get together for fellowship and prayer and the study of God's word and encouraging one another. We need this, beloved. The Bible says we are to encourage each other daily while it's today, right? For Christ is coming. And we wish to be ready. So if we follow the pattern of the Christians in the New Testament, then we should commit to each of these gatherings as the primary means of growing spiritually. The mature and the maturing are in these settings drinking the milk of God's Word. The starving and the weak are somewhere else doing something else. We need the milk of God's word if we're going to grow. Number three, quickly, we need to remember that God is good together. That's what we see in verse three. Peter keeps writing there. He says, you know, we need to drink the spiritual milk of God's word. And then he interjects this thought. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now that, that he is good, ain't it? But that if hits you first. That if indeed, right? And there are three ways that we can 
think about that. Number one, we can think about that as Peter questioning their salvation. He's saying, hey, like newborn infants long for the the pure spiritual milk um, that you may grow up into your salvation. And so we could hit this if indeed, and we think that Peter now is questioning whether or not they're saved. I think you could read it that way, but it's not the best way to read it in the context because he spent all of chapter one up until this point telling them that they are saved. Another way we could read that is we we could read that verse three as assuming they are saved. So you may have a translation that uses the word sense, right? That would be another way to translate this, again, because of the context, because so much has already been said about their salvation. That's a better reading. I'm not quite sure it's still yet the best reading. There's a third way of reading this, where if indeed you have tasted, should be read as a kind of challenging affirmation, right? Where Peter is not questioning their salvation, he is affirming it, but he's challenging them to show it. He's sort of saying, yeah, okay, since you are saved, you should have this desire for the milk. Since you are saved, you should be showing this desire um, for the milk. You should be showing this kind of spiritual growth. Since you know better, you should do better. This is what Peter is saying here. And in verse 3, he's quoting from Psalm 34, verse 8. In fact, much of 1 Peter in its structure seems to be mirroring the themes of Psalm 34. And so he says there in Psalm 34, verse 8, the psalm writer says, O taste and see that the Lord is good, blesses the man who takes refuge in him. To be saved is to experience God's goodness. To taste it the way a baby tastes their mother's milk. And by tasting it, the goodness of God, desiring yet more of it. I mean, the exiles who received Peter's letter are are catching it as exiles. Life is hard. But they also know God's goodness. And and Peter has just been reminding them of God's goodness as he's gone through this letter. He says in verse 3 that God has caused them to be born again to a living hope. He says in verse 5 that God is keeping them by his power for salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. He says in verse 6, I know that you are are grieved by various trials, but really your faith is being purified. He says in verse 8 that you have this inexpressible joy filled with glory. That's a taste of the goodness of the Lord. He says in verse 22 that they're experiencing God's divine love in the church. In all these ways and more, they can experience, that is, they can taste that God is good. I wonder if God is so good to you that you can taste it. They know what God is like. He says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Despite what's happening around them, despite what's happening to them, they know God's internal and eternal character, that the Lord is good. There is no corruption in him. There is no evil in him. There's no harshness in him. The Lord is not petty. The Lord is not mean. He is not indifferent to his people. The Lord is good and altogether lovely. He is altogether wonderful. He is altogether holy. He is altogether beautiful. He is altogether true. The Lord is good. I know it from the Bible. And I know it from experience. 
I wonder if you could testify to that too, that you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. How's he shown it to you in your life? It was an arrest as a high schooler that put me on the path to college. The Lord is good. I thought my life was over. It was partying and hanging out and fights and shootings. And yet the Lord spared my life. Uh, the Lord is good. Uh, we was poor as a family. We was poor. We couldn't afford the OR. We was poor as a family. I was the youngest of eight. But you know what? I was never hungry because the Lord is good. I was lost in sin and idolatry. Thought I knew the way, was convinced that Islam was true, but was dead in sin, and yet the Lord found me as lost as I was. We miscarried our first baby and suffered in that miscarriage a sense of hopelessness and paralysis and loss that I don't know that I've experienced since. And it was that that God used to change my heart and to bring me to himself. I know that the Lord is good. Not only has he told me he's good in his word, he's shown me that he's good in my life. If we have tasted that the Lord is good, then we ought to drink from that milk some more. We ought to go back to that beverage, back to that fount, and see and document and celebrate his goodness to us. What particular shape has God's goodness taken in your life? And do you have the remembrance of it? Do we have the remembrance of it so stored up that if somebody asks us to tell them if God is good, it just spills out of our mouth just like that? I don't know about you, but there are some seasons where I get so busy with the ordinariness of life, I be forgetting the extraordinariness of God's goodness. So I got to keep a record. I got to build an Ebenezer. I got a journal. I got to write some things down. I got to go back to the testimony so I don't forget that the Lord is good. So you might be here this morning, and you might be like, well, I... He ain't been that good to me. Well, first of all, it ain't about him being good to you the way he's good to other people. That good to me, that's a comparison phrase. Drop the comparison. The goodness he needs to show you ain't got to look like the goodness he show other people. Stop coveting. That's another sin to repent of. Stop coveting. First of all. Second of all, if, if you're here and I'm not usually this confrontational, but I feel like the Lord would have me say this to you. If you're here and you don't think God is good to you, it's because you ain't paying attention. Now, don't, don't hear me wrong. I ain't saying that your life might not be hard. I ain't saying that you ain't suffering. I ain't saying that it ain't real. I ain't saying that the pain is light. I ain't saying that. Peter is writing to exiles. He's writing to people who've been ran out of their own home and are homeless in the world. They're surely suffering. Suffering's real. I'm saying that you might be focused on the wrong thing. And therefore, you might be missing just how good God really is to you. 
So my challenge to you would be to go home, get out a piece of paper, and write down everything good in your life. It might start slow, but keep going, keep writing. It might seem small, but keep writing. The more you write, the more you will have to write. Because the goodness of the Lord is so plentiful that it cannot be absent in your life. I love something. I hope I don't embarrass him. I hadn't planned to say this. And some people tell you, if you don't plan what you're going to say, you're going to say what you didn't plan. But I think this is safe, right? I love the example of my son. The other day we were riding in the car, coming home from basketball practice, and uh, we, have, we have coach-player conversations, and we have father-son conversations. Because some things I need to say as a coach are different than things I need to say as a, son, as a father, right? So we have these kinds of conversations, and we've been having lots of conversations lately. And uh, I don't quite know why or where or what it was, but probably about four or five days ago, he decided he's going to start counting his positive days. He got something like a, a positive day meter. And so I asked him after practice one day, I said, how was your day today? He said, now normally he said, eh, it's all right. You know, teenager answer, right? It's all right. Yeah, it's all right. You know. And so but that day he said, um, he said, I'm counting it. It was good. I said, what? He said, yeah, it's, it's two days in a row on my good day meter. I said, what? So what's talking about? He said, I just decided I'm going to start focusing on the good days and count the good day, you know, as much as I can. And to see the, to see the change in perspective and heart and the lightness in his soul that's come from that, that's, that's, that's challenged me. We had a game the other night. We had a 17-point lead. They cut it to 11. They cut it to 9. I started getting worried. I started pacing the sideline, fussing. Come on, somebody box out, somebody do something. And Titus was over there praising God and praying. He was like, good effort, good hustle. I seen him. I said, that's the way to stay positive, man. All right, I'm going to change my toe, right? Let me change my toe. I guarantee you if, you, if you take count of God's goodness, it'll change your heart and change your perspective. Because God is so good. It's always good. Always good. That there will be things in your life to praise him for. All right, let me get off of that. A couple quick, couple quick applications, we're done. How can we remember together that the Lord is good? Three quick bullet points. Number one, journal. Write it down. Christians leak. We forget, right? If we don't write it down, we'll forget some things, and, and we need to remember, right? Number two, testimonies. We love testimonies. Share your testimony. Listen to other people's testimonies. Rejoice with them in the goodness of God. Let, let the testimony of another or let your testimony be a window for people into the goodness of God for them. Share your testimony. Number three, the application was said before, Bible study, small groups, triad groups, gather with God's people, study his word. Because here's the thing, in those days where we can't quite see God's goodness in our own lives, we can't deny it in the Bible. So if we're in God's word, we will see God's goodness because that's where he shows himself to us. So, beloved, how are we going to grow as a church? It won't be by being slick. It won't be by some clever strategy. It won't be by me being a little bit more entertaining as a preacher. That'll bring some folks in. You can gather a crowd and not be a church. 
How are we going to grow as a church? It's by putting away sin, drinking the milk of God's word, and together remembering and reminding each other that God is good. Then we will grow up in this salvation. Let's pray together. Father, indeed, we praise you for you are good. And that just seems like too weak a praise. That word good is so used that it, it just feels like it's inadequate to describe your splendor, your majesty, your generosity, your love and benevolence, your faithfulness and steadfastness. But Lord, we testify in the words of the scripture that you are good. We have tasted it and we have seen it and you have become our refuge. You're our tower. We, we run into you and there we are safe. And we want to build our lives on the remembrance that you are good, Lord, so that we go out into a dark world and we encounter people who aren't so good. We will remember what you're like and your presence with us. As my brother testified earlier, that you are Emmanuel. God with us in all of your goodness. Help us never to forget it. And as we remember it, help us to put away those things that are contrary to love, to put away sin and not accept it, and, and help us to drink together from the milk of your word and so be nursed by you into full health and strength. Lord, we want to grow in all the right ways so that there is a powerful witness to Jesus Christ in our lives and in this church and in this community. We need your grace to do so. Would you be gracious to us, O oh Lord, this morning? Help us grow in Jesus' name. Amen.